Today at Reader's Corner, Clyde Prestowitz, author of The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. When China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, most experts expected the move to liberalize China, make it a more responsible stakeholder in the liberal world order. But experts made the wrong bet. China today is liberalizing neither economically nor politically, but if anything, becoming more authoritarian and mercantilist. In his latest book, The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership, renowned globalization and Asia expert Clyde Prestowitz describes the key challenges posed by China and the strategies America and the free world must adopt to meet them. He argues that these must be more sophisticated and more comprehensive than a narrowly targeted trade war. Rather, he urges strategies that the United States and its allies can use unilaterally without contravening international or domestic law. Clyde Prestowitz is the founder and president of the Economic Strategy Institute and a former counselor to the Secretary of Commerce in the Reagan administration. He writes for Foreign Affairs Magazine and is the author of Rogue Nation and the Betrayal of American Prosperity, among other books. Clyde Prestowitz, welcome to Reader's Corner. Oh, thank you. Nice to be with you. In the opening chapter of your book, you share some thoughts that a Singapore friend of yours gave you regarding China, China's relationship with Singapore. And then you cite the book Silent Invasion to tell a similar tale about China's relationship with Australia. What does that lesson tell us about the growing influence of China, not just in Asia, but around the globe? Well, I think the key factor, dependence on China is dangerous. Uh, The more dependent a country becomes on China, Uh, the more likely it is to be disciplined by China, punished by China, censored by China, uh, just in other ways mistreated. And it's interesting that uh, in the case of Australia, you mentioned, uh, I was in Australia uh, researching this book, would have been in uh, 2018, so uh, let's say two and a half years ago. And at the time, I met with uh, one of the leading bankers, and he made this comment. He said, Clyde, you know, uh, we Aussies, we were uh, with you guys. Uh, We were with the Brits in in World War I, and you guys, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan. But if there's any dust-up over Taiwan, don't look for us on the beach. And I said, why? And he said, well, look, our biggest export is Coal, it goes to China. Our second biggest export is iron ore. It goes to China. Our third biggest export is education. It's all Chinese students coming to study in Australia. And our fourth biggest export is tourists, and the tourists are all Chinese. And so we don't want to mess around with the Chinese. So now, as you know, Australia is being disciplined by China. The prime minister of Australia made the mistake of uh, calling for an open investigation of the origin of the COVID virus in China. Chinese didn't like that. Uh, And so they suddenly have stopped buying coal and iron ore and Australian wine and barley, et cetera. And uh, so that the, the price of becoming coupled with China is loss of freedom. And when you say the the Chinese, um, it's really not even the Chinese people It's not the Chinese government, but as you point out, and maybe you can elaborate, it's the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Yeah, our battle is not with the Chinese people. Uh, It's not with China per se. It is with the Chinese Communist Party. 
Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has openly declared uh, its opposition uh, to the values that uh, people in the free world stand for. So if you look at document number nine of the Chinese Communist Party Congress in uh, 2013, uh, it states forthrightly that China is opposed to uh, Western-style constitutional democracy, that China is opposed to the concept of universal human values, that China opposes uh, speech or writing that is not censored by the Chinese Communist Party, that it opposes rule of law. So all the fundamental uh, bases of democracy are the enemies of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's where the problem lies. That reminds me of uh, something you mentioned in your book regarding the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. Uh, in a sense, uh, it tells us something about which Pied Piper the global community is following these days. And the U.S., as far as I know to this date, has not joined that bank, but uh, a number of people have. Could you uh, share with us who joined up and who didn't and uh, why hasn't the U.S. joined up and should they? Well, a lot of uh, a lot of the European uh, countries, and uh, also a number of Asian countries, South Korea, uh, Japan, Australia, did join. Um, and they all joined because they uh, they all have uh, important trading relations with China. I think it was a defensive uh, move uh, in order to. On the one hand, maintain good relationship with China. On the other hand, maybe find new opportunities for investment and development in part of the developing world. I think the U.S. has not joined because to do so would, in a way, uh, forfeit American leadership of the World Bank. It kind of undercuts the uh, the work of the World Bank, of the Asian Development Bank, of the Latin America Development Bank, and clearly the Chinese aimed that institution uh, as an opponent of uh, and something to undercut uh, the existing global financial structure, it would have been a mistake, in my view, for the U.S. to join, and we haven't. So I'm glad we didn't make that mistake. Mm -hmm. And isn't there a difference between the conditions that are set by some global institution like the, the World Bank and China's approach to life, which is not to ask the questions, certainly about human rights, that's obvious, but, but other things as well. I think, think you talk in your book about stipulations that we in the democratic free world uh, would require of countries we're going to lend money to, but um, China is not so interested. No, that's, that's correct. Uh, people complain frequently about uh, too many stipulations and too many conditions attached to World Bank or Asia uh, Development Bank uh, programs, and I'm sympathetic to that. But on the other hand, China's uh, lending and investment, particularly for its One Belt, One Road project, is very uh, hidden. Nobody really knows what the conditions are or the stipulations are, uh, and it seems that they're very different in the case of different countries. So it's a very political system that gives China maximum flexibility and maximum control over uh, the people to whom it's lending. You mentioned One Belt, One Road. I think I remember you saying that 
One Belt, One Road, that is China's investment in Africa, may be in 35 countries? Oh, it's more than that. More than that? Uh, it uh, encompasses, I mean, all of Africa, much of uh, Central Asia, uh, the Middle East, uh, Europe, uh, Greece, uh, Italy, Portugal, Hungary. Many European countries are also involved uh, in that program. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and Latin America is also an important part. In fact, in doing my research, I, out of curiosity, I looked at the, the country of Panama. Of course, the Panama Canal goes through Panama, and it's really incredible. Um, China, the various institutions of China, the Chinese Communist Party, essentially own everything in Panama except the canal. <laughs> and, and other Latin American countries also are uh, heavily involved. You're listening to Clyde Prestowitz. He's the author of The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the struggle for global leadership. Well, let's talk about the World Trade Organization, to which you devote some attention in your in your book. Uh, the WTO, uh, maybe you can help our listeners with just a brief description of what, what in fact that was intended to do, but I want to get down to the specifics of uh, China's admission to the WTO, which had something to do with President Clinton's leadership and his foreign policy team at the time, what they thought they were going to accomplish in uh, – why that didn't work. So uh, just very brief history. Uh, at the end of World War II, uh, the victorious Western countries established the basis of the new global economy. Uh, and in doing that, they created the World Bank. They created the International Monetary Fund. They established the U.S. dollar as the world's major reserve currency. And they concluded an agreement called the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade better known as the GATT, G-A-T-T. Uh, and under that agreement, trading countries around the world came to negotiate initially tariff rates. And the idea was to try to reduce barriers to trade in order to stimulate trade, to stimulate recovery from the war. And so for a long time, the GATT was essentially a mechanism in which countries negotiated to reduce uh, tariffs on imports around the world. Well, as the global economy uh, grew rapidly and became more complex, the issues in trade also became more complex, and and tariffs had been reduced to quite low levels, but there remained a lot of problems in trade relationships uh, because of management of uh, intervention in currency markets, export subsidies, and currency uh, value management. So in the 1990s, the countries of the GATT negotiated a new organization, the World Trade Organization, uh, which was intended to be uh, more uh, encompassing of all of the world's trade issues. That negotiation was concluded in 1995 about, uh, but China was not included. And so toward the uh, end of the 1990s, investment by American and European and Japanese companies in China had become uh, quite extensive. China had been pursuing the policy of opening up, uh, encouraging new investment to come into China. And so there was uh, a consensus among most of the world's trading countries 
that we ought to try to bring China into the World Trade Organization on the one hand in order to standardize the way we're all dealing with China, and on the other hand, in order to, uh, to discipline China under the rules of the WTO so that it wouldn't be able to subsidize or to impose barriers uh, kind of unilaterally uh, without consent from the rest of the trading world. Uh, and so hence China was uh, brought into the WTO uh, at the end of 2001. The negotiations began in the late 1990s under the Clinton administration. And then actually the the actual entrance of China took place uh, under the George W. Bush administration. Uh, now, I think that at that time, there was a lot of enthusiasm in the U.S. and in much of the rest of the world among business leaders uh, for getting into the Chinese market. One of the problems was that we already had, we the United States, already had a big trade deficit with China. So let's say in 1998-99, our trade deficit with China was about $100 billion a year. And trade deficits mean that that's, that's a loss of American jobs. And so there was a lot of concern in the U.S. of, gee, if we bring these guys into the WTO, what happens to our trade deficit might get bigger. Uh, and the uh, Clinton administration, Charlene Barshevsky was the U.S. trade representative at the time. She and other members of the Clinton administration, they did a lot of calculation, and they estimated that, um, that actually because China at the time had high tariffs on imports from the U.S., and the U.S. had low tariffs on imports from China, uh, they calculated that by bringing China into the WTO, the U.S. trade deficit would actually be halved uh, <laughs> to $50 billion from $100 billion. Uh, and so the Clinton administration explained that to the Congress, and on the basis of that kind of calculation, the Congress agreed to bring China into the WTO. Uh, now, to fast forward to, uh, to today, uh, rather than the U.S. trade deficit with China being half, Instead of 100 billion, it's now about 600 billion, <laughs> and so clearly the analysts who did that calculation uh, got it wrong. Right. So, what role does the state-owned enterprise play here? As I understand it, China did agree or at least commit to shifting from state-owned enterprises and central economic guidance. They obviously didn't, or you wouldn't have that number you just mentioned. But Yeah, no, China actually never agreed to uh, get rid of state-owned enterprises. What they agreed to do was uh, to assure that the state-owned enterprises would operate uh, on a competitive basis, that they would not be unduly subsidized or have special tax arrangements. You know, they would operate like real companies. Right. And mind you, there are state-owned enterprises in other countries. Uh, the French auto company, Renault, uh, the French government has a golden share in Renault. They have uh, uh, a very powerful interest in Renault. But Renault operates like a, a real auto company. And so the Chinese agreed that they would do the same thing. Now, it was, it was a hope of the U.S. and of the Western, uh, let's say, the free market countries. There was a hope that China would do away with the state-owned enterprises. 
And in the 1990s, China did reorganize its state-owned enterprises. Uh, and that was interpreted by many observers in the West, including President George H.W. Bush, <laughs> was interpreted to mean that China was abandoning state-owned enterprises. And that interpretation was encouraged by the widespread uh, fundamental belief, particularly in the U.S., but also in Europe to some extent, that state-owned enterprises are not efficient. Uh, that you have to have real market-oriented enterprises to be competitive. And so the reorganization that China undertook in the late 1990s was widely interpreted in the West as China's getting rid of state-owned enterprises. But at a dinner that was attended by George H.W. Bush and by Zhu Rongji, who at that time was the czar of the Chinese economy, Bush said to Zhu, uh, how are you getting along with uh, abolishing the state-owned enterprises? <laughs> and Zhu said, no, 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 Mr. President, we're not abolishing them. Uh, we're reorganizing them. And Bush, with a knowing smile, said, ha ha, we know what you're doing. Well, he had no clue what they were doing. <laughs> right. and, neither did, and neither did the rest of the, of the Western economists. They all have egg on their faces because China did reorganize its state-owned enterprises dramatically, and they have become very competitive, and they're the spearhead of China's uh, movement into the global economy. Mm -hmm. So explain the issue of decoupling and how it may have been first proposed, maybe not first proposed, but certainly there were conservatives who thought that was a good idea. But uh, you have some other thoughts about who really benefits from that and whose game it really is. Well, let's be very clear. Uh, in On the U.S. side, in terms of uh, of resisting coupling with China, I would say there wasn't any from any side. Uh, I was there. I was in the Reagan administration. I was uh, chairman of Bill Clinton's Commission on Trade and Investment in Asia. I was on the uh, Export-Import Bank. I was an advisor to President Obama. So I've seen this for a long time. Uh, and there was huge enthusiasm among American economists, uh, American political scientists, American China experts, U.S. CEOs couldn't wait to get to China. Everybody was bound and determined that America was going to really couple up with China and that that was going to transform China, not only into a market economy, but into a democratic, politically oriented country. And... Um, that was called engagement. Positive engagement was the policy. But Bill Clinton, as you may remember, ran for office on the slogan that no toleration of, uh, of uh, uh, authoritarian government from uh, Baghdad to Beijing. But as soon as Clinton became president, he changed his slogan. And the new slogan was positive engagement, meaning that we would uh, negotiate closer economic ties, and through those closer economic ties, not only would China's economy become more liberal and more open, but so also its political system would become more liberal and more open. Uh, now, that uh, unanimity on the, on the free world side began to break down a bit in the early uh, 2000, 2004, 2005, there began to be a little bit of a breakdown of that enthusiasm because it wasn't quite working out the way people had anticipated. 
and China was requiring if you want to do business here, you have to bring your technology here. And even if you want to do business here, you have to export a certain percentage of your production here. A number of companies had experienced theft of their technology. So there was beginning to be a little bit of, uh, let's say, more realism about China. But still, you know, up until, let's say, 2010, there was very strong enthusiasm for China across the board. Now, mind you, in 1997, China built the Great Firewall, which was the sensors of the Internet. So essentially, China cut the Chinese Internet off from the rest of the World Wide Web. That was the first major step of decoupling, and it was initiated by China, not by the U.S. China also banned companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, companies that had access to information or, or they had ability to get information that couldn't be controlled by China. China kept them out. Uh, and those were kind of the early signals that China wasn't going to become what, what we had hoped that it would become. But then you get to the point of uh, 2012 when Xi Jinping becomes uh, chairman uh, of the Chinese Communist Party, becomes the prime minister and the new head of China. And it became clear with his new administration that China was very much interested not in becoming a, uh, a responsible stakeholder in the liberal global rules-based order, but rather in creating its own order. And um, one of the indications of that was this uh, Article 9, document number 9 that I mentioned earlier, stating China's values and stating that China opposed the idea of free speech, rule of law, uh, constitutional democracy. And then in 2015, China announced its new program called Made in China 2025. This was a program that aimed for semiconductors, robotics, artificial intelligence, biotech, aviation, whole wide range of high-tech industries were to be, the plan was that they would all, all those products uh, and technologies would be done in China and that China would become the leader globally in those areas, pushing the free world companies uh, out of those markets. And so the combination of those events began to make people, many in the West, begin to rethink And the most important rethink was The Economist magazine, which has been the high priest of free trade and was the high priest of engagement with China for a very long time. But on March 1, 2018, the cover story of The Economist magazine stated the West has made the wrong bet on China. Uh, And that triggered what we have been going through in the last three years which is a fundamental rethink of uh, what the truth of China is and a rethink of how we should be dealing with China. I'm Bob Kuster, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Clyde Prestowitz, author of The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership. You know, in your last book, The Betrayal of American Prosperity, you shared that famous quote by Engine Charlie Wilson, who was the GM president years ago, 
who said what's good for the country is good for General Motors and vice versa. And you rightly pointed out in that book that the fate of U.S. companies and the fate of the U.S. economy were tightly linked. But it doesn't look like it's that way so much anymore when Apple's Tim Cook and and Google's Sundar Puchai cave in to China's demands to put up guardrails for its authoritarian policies, namely free speech. And I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what can be, in a free enterprise system like America, the U.S. response to China, which has its companies and its government all singing the same tune, while in fact U.S. companies cut separate deals on this intellectual property issue, for example. I mean, they go in and and China says, well, look, yeah, you can build a plant here, but you're going to have to share some of that intellectual property. And, and, and they do it. They do it because they want to make a buck, because they want to survive, because they want to expand uh, their trade. But um, I'm trying to figure out, and I know I want you to talk about your principle of reciprocity. We're running out of time here, and I shouldn't be talking so much. But uh, maybe in your in your comments on applying the principle of reciprocity, you can also uh, address this issue of how does the U.S. counter this incredible power that has government and the private sector working so closely together? Sure. Look, it's a, it's a fundamental problem. My major point is that it's no longer true that what's good for General Motors is good for the United States. Uh, global CEOs of global companies like Apple, General Motors, uh, like General Electric, uh, they, you know, the companies are chartered in the United States. But these are global companies and the CEOs are not concerned about what's good for America. They're concerned about what's good for their company in the global environment. And so I think it's very important for the United States in developing a strategy to respond to China. One of the key elements of that strategy must be that the U.S. government imposes more discipline on the activity and the policies of CEOs and of of U.S. global companies. Uh, Now, it's very important for people to understand where a corporation comes from. Uh, Corporations cannot just create themselves. You and I can't just decide, okay, we're going to build a corporation and, you know, I'll put in $100, you put in $100, we'll have a corporation. No, 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 no. You have to be chartered by the state. In America, each state has the power to charter a corporation. Delaware is the most popular state for chartering corporations. Why? Because it has the easiest requirements. So the vast bulk of U.S. corporations are, in fact, chartered in Delaware. But still, you have to get a charter. Now, why do you have to get a charter? Well, when the government agrees to enable a corporation to be established, it gives the investors in that new corporation a huge gift. It gives them limited liability. If if you and I set up a new corporation and we invest in that corporation, the state says, okay, if that's a corporation and if it goes bust, you two guys are not liable for more, any more than you invested. So what that means is if the corporation goes bust, okay, the, the creditors might take away whatever we have invested in the corporation, but they can't take a house. They can't take our car. They can't take you know, our personal possessions. That's a huge gift that states give, the state gives to corporations. In return, why does the state do that? The state does that because it expects 
that the corporation is going to do something that will be good for the citizens of the state. Uh, now, what has happened is that we have taken corp- incorporation for granted. Nobody thinks about what a great gift is being given. Uh, other countries are not so generous. In other countries, the state imposes greater requirements on the corporation. In Japan or Germany, the corporation is not as free to do what it pleases as it is in America. And I think one thing we need to do is to look at what the Japanese and the Germans and others are doing and get more of a handle on our own corporations so that they can't be taken hostage. Right now, people like Tim Cook at at Apple are, are hostage. They're hostage to Beijing, not to Washington, but to Beijing. In Washington, they have armies of lawyers and lobbyists. They spend gazillions of dollars influencing policy in Washington. In Beijing, they're on their knees. Uh, And so we need the U.S. government to take steps to uh, put more requirements and more of a control on the activities of U.S. globally active corporations. Second point is that in uh, dealing with China, you often hear uh, commentators talk about getting tough with China or stop China from cheating uh, or really enforce the rules of the WTO on China. I want to say that's a waste of time. Forget about trying to change China. We will not be able to change China's behavior just by telling them or asking them politely to do it. Uh, What we need to do is to take the steps that are necessary for ourselves to assure that we are the leader in the key technologies and in the key uh, markets around the world to keep ourselves and the free world. It doesn't have to be all American companies, but it has to be free world corporations and free world economies that are leading the pack in the key industries like semiconductors, robotics, aviation, etc. Now, interestingly, President Biden is now about to have a bill passed that, for example, will put about $50 billion into the U.S. semiconductor industry. That's not enough, but it's the right step. And we should be doing a lot more of that, not just in semiconductors, but across the board in the key high-tech industries. Well, Clyde Prestowitz, we've run out of time, but you've just uh, started this trip down your last chapter of the book, which is called The Plan for China. And there's a number of things in that chapter we haven't had time to cover. And that's why our listeners have to get out and get a copy of the book that really I think is the best treatment on China that I've ever done here at Reader's Corner. The name of the book is The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership. Clyde Prestowitz is its author and our guest today. Clyde, thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. Don't forget, Reader's Corner is also a podcast. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.